Hello everyone and welcome to Two Guys, Five Movies. This is one of your hosts, Frank Pellicone. This is Chris Gasperi. You may be wondering, why are the roles reversed tonight? The reason for that is that episode 68 is the top five movies that Chris loves, but Frank hates. So, contrary to our usual format, I'm going to be introducing the movies. Chris is going to tell you why he loves them, and then I'm going to shit all over every single one of them, to various degrees, some more than... Some more than others. So, uh, Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about why this list appealed to you and some movies maybe that you felt should have been on the list but uh, but weren't. Well, I don't think this list necessarily appealed to me at all, did it? I, I think this is more your idea, if I remember correctly. Right, but I'm just trying to follow format. <laughs> well, I um, it's, it's constant... Because you always pick the movies that we inevitably have things that you pick that I do not like whatsoever. And you are constantly judging and criticizing pretty much 50% of the movies that I like from the 1980s and a lot and from the, and the 90s. So you, um, so we, I think we decided at some point that we were going to go ahead and try to flip the script at one point so that... I could talk about movies that I liked and that you didn't like, and somehow it ended up coming up with this really clunky title of the top five movies that Chris loves but Frank hates. I think um, it flows. <laughs> I, there's some there's parallel structure there. Sure, Chris loves Frank hates conjunction in between. So you sent me a list originally of about seventy movies. Right. That you thought that I hated. Well, no, 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 no. It wasn't that I thought that you hated all of them. Is that I, you've been claiming this for a while now. It's not that I thought that you hated all of them. There's many of them that we just really hadn't talked about ever. So I didn't know. And then there's also times where you claim that you hate a movie and then suddenly, like, when it's brought up to you six months later, you'll say, I never said that about that movie. I like that movie. It's fine. If I say a movie's fine, it means that I don't like really like it, but I don't despise it. Fine. So what are some movies that you thought that I would pick off the list you sent? Just give me like five that you're surprised that I didn't put on this list. There's one that was a glaring I, omission that I didn't think about at the time. Hold on. I got to go. I got to pull that up real quick. I wasn't expecting you to ask this question. Okay, so what did I expect you to pick? Um, being There was one of the movies that I thought that you might pick. I will never understand why you think I hate Being There. Because you've said that that movie's not very good. But I don't hate it. You were very forceful in the way that you told me yeah. before that you did not think that Being There was not very good. It's overrated. I thought that it was possible because we never really talked about it. Except for, I think, like one reference one time you made um, to the Poseidon Adventure. Yeah, I like the Poseidon Adventure just fine. I remember one point specifically when we, had, I think we had been drinking and you sat there and said something kind of came up about the Poseidon Adventure that I specifically referenced. And you said something along the lines of like, oh, they're stuck under fucking water or some shit. Ugh. <laughs> So, therefore, I thought that maybe it was possible that you did not like the, um... I don't have a problem with that movie. Okay. 
Uh, I mean, I don't think it's like fantastic or anything, but it's fine. I'm trying to think here. Inner space? Yeah, I like inner space. I'm trying to think of the money pit. Now, the money pit is a glaring omission from this list, and I wish I had put it on there because I watched the money pit last week just to see, and boy, do I hate that fucking movie. Did you, without jumping in too soon, did you, the number five movie on the list, did you like the money pit less than that? <laughs> I had to, I have to look. Oh, um, about the same. Okay. The money, the money pit's a much better movie than this movie. No, on, that's number five on the no, list. No, they're both terrible. Okay, was it? Was there? Is that the one that you were thinking of? That like you were wondering about the omission? Uh, Money Pit, Raising Arizona is another one that I kind of, kind of wish I had put on the list because I really hate that movie. Um, there's weird stuff like Throw Mama from the Train that you just love. That I mean, I don't hate it, but like, I don't like it either. I love Throw Mama from the Train. I just watched yeah. Throw Mama from the Train like a month ago. What's funny to me is you have stuff like so. I'm looking at this list now. Like, you have license to drive twice on this list. Like, you were, like, trying to force me to pick license to drive. Stuff like Cloak and Dagger. Like, why would you think I don't like Cloak and Dagger? Well, no, you have to understand license to drive. I, I picked movies out that... I can't remember why I did that. There's, like, two two references on them. Because Armed and Dangerous and Inner Space are the same thing on this list. But I think it, what it was was movies that, like, I copy and pasted that I... You asked me a question, and I copy and pasted a couple titles I got out of that. Anyway, so, I mean, there's stuff, like, like you have Big Lebowski. Oh, I also list. thought that you were going to spring, summer, fall, winter, spring possibly pick. That movie is fine. Right. Audience, this is what I mean by this, is, like, that movie's fine. You can hear the, condens- <laughs> the, the condescending tone in which he says it. This is constant all the time. It's fine. It's this long drawn out fine. If I say something's fine, I mean that sincerely. Like it's fine. It's not fantastic. But the way it's you not said fine there, yes, garbage either. But not the way that you just said fine thirty seconds ago. I feel like this list is a veiled attempt to try and like undermine my credibility, and just get me to say mean things about movies that other people like, which is fine as well. I'm well, you that. do that all the time, right? I can't help when people have bad taste. I say I would say that this list that I sent you is a very kind of, um, it's very telling popula- about you. A very populist, um, should I say almost like blue collar like list oh, of movies that here. you um that you uh you just dislike for whatever reason. He is an elitist. <laughs> My favorite genre of movies is horror movies. There's nothing more blue collar than like a good horror movie. Right? Okay. Sure. Except maybe a good comedy. But those are few and far between. (laughs) Right. Do you want to use that host as a segue (laughs) into number five? Right. Let's jump into the list then. So number five is 1987's Overboard, directed by Gary Marshall, starring Kurt Russell, Goldie Hawn, Edward Herman, uh, Catherine Hellmond. Uh, It's uh, 43% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) And a 74% from audiences. Um, I think the seven and the four should be reversed there if there was any justice <laughs> in this world. But uh, here we are. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about the movie and why you like it. This is really weird. <laughs> I didn't think it would be this weird for me. Um, <clears throat> okay. So the movie itself uh, starts. It follows a couple named uh, Grant and Joanna. 
uh, who are this rich couple that have docked in this like little small kind of rustic blue collar town on their yacht. And uh, they're I can't remember why they're there, but they because um, Grant needs to get his uh, engines worked on. And Joanna wants a car. Well, to right. Redo. And then she hires. But in right. the meantime, she hires the Kurt Russell uh, character, Dean Prophet. Um, and Dean comes in to make a closet for her. Uh, they have this like a life of excess and um, uh, because they're like uber wealthy and she's this kind of like stereotypical 80s rich bitch who like criticizes everything that Dean does as he's trying to make the closet and there's this whole episode where she doesn't like the type of wood that he used and she ends up throwing him overboard um, like pushing him overboard at one point and throwing his tools overboard and that's the first overboard incident in the movie. And then later, um, she what like can't find her wedding ring. And she, she left goes, her wedding ring on the prow of the right. Ship. So she goes out in the middle of the night and she like goes to like try to reach for her wedding ring, which is like fallen, and she falls overboard and she ha- ends up getting amnesia and she can't remember who she is. So Kurt Russell's character, Dean, sees it on the news. And as revenge develops this plan to go, because, sorry, her husband has found out where she's at, Grant, and hates her so much that he just leaves her in, like, the hospital to, um, you know, just not knowing who she is. And then goes off and, like, for the rest of the movie up until the, uh, toward the, the last, like, quarter of it, like, goes off and lives this wild life with all these, like, you know, like, playmates and stuff like that and has these wild parties on the boat and leaves her there. And so when she's unclaimed, basically, Dean sees it on the news and gets this bright idea um, to, uh, as revenge, go ahead and... Uh, pretend that she's his wife and gets photos doctored of their wedding day and all this other stuff and um just a little bit of backstory on him he has like five kids i think four he has four four. um he has four kids and his wife died so there's like this kind of like sympathy to the character you're supposed to have in some way because of his dead wife and and he ends up convincing her that she's actually the mother of these children these obnoxious like children that he's like let like run wild and then it's a comedy of errors at that point where she tries to ingratiate herself into the household slowly. Um, and, you know, the kids like, you know, kind of like mistreat her and Dean like, you know, fucks with her like and um, eventually it ends up to where like she actually grows to like fall in love with him and fall in love with the kids and like, you know, becomes like a real mother and wife. And then she finds out that Dean's been lying to her. And you have that turn where she goes back to her husband at this point. Um, and the only reason he's coming back to take her back is because um, Catherine Hellman is playing uh, Joanna's mother and is threatening basically to take the money away and stuff like that. So he goes and like grabs her up and brings her back finally. And but she realizes once she gets back to that life that she's changed person and she doesn't like that lifestyle anymore and blah 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 and like her and Dean end up together in the end. So you skipped a few salient points there, I think. Um that go along with like why I hate this movie. Okay. Yeah. First of all, he kidnaps this woman from 
a psychiatric ward Mm -hmm. and then tortures her for weeks under the pretense of getting his money's worth because he figures each day is worth $10 or each day is worth $20 and a month will be enough to pay for the work that he did on the boat. Sure. Then rapes this woman one night after she thinks that like they're married and he sleeps with her multiple times over the course of the night while letting his children like look at her naked body in their room. That's the, that's the part of that, that I, yes, that's, that's what's weird. Yeah. And then basically there's no consequence to this, it. No. She, she... So Dean profit, this is the part where I tell you why I hate this movie. Okay. First I, of I all, like that you get to tell me why you hate it before I say why I like it. Okay, I'm sorry. Tell me no, why no, you no, like go it. Ahead. No, no, no. No, because now I, I'm going to respond to your criticism because it, it ties into what I was going to say to some degree. Dean Prophet's one of the most unlikable main characters in the history of cinema. And in an era where people like Nick Nolte's character in 48 Hours were considered to be heroes, Dean Prophet is somehow worse. He's a terrible father. He's a terrible friend. You imagine he was probably a terrible husband. He's a kidnapper. He's a rapist. He's a con artist. There's just like nothing likable about him. And yet you're supposed to root for him to get the girl. Like her relationship with her husband is terrible. But it's a creation of mutual like whatever, like need or whatever it is because of like their wealth. Which you like later find out was all hers. So why was she staying with that schlub anyway? Grant or whatever. Mm-hmm. The true like ending of this movie should have been her saying, fuck all of these people. I'm going to go be rich somewhere else. Away from my adulterous, insane husband and this kidnapping rapist that held me like... It's like because it, it makes you almost... It's like she gets like Stockholm syndrome because she knows that she doesn't belong there. But he's like, no, no, no. We always used to do this stuff where like you would cook food and then I'd go out and get drunk every night. And then they try and make you sympathetic to him. Oh, he's <laughs> he's got a second job hauling fertilizer. Right. But they show you earlier in the movie he's going out and drinking with his friends at the bowling alley. Early on. Right. So it's not like he's always going out and hauling fertilizer. It's just like he's a scumbag. Well, he actually started hauling fertilizer, I think, is the is the implication of that movie, is because he actually started to become probably the man that he used to be when he was married before, before his wife died, and he's actually like starting to care about the family. Look, again. don't give me some implications. It, it never says that. He's, he, he's a turd. He's a turd and he's a criminal. <laughs> and the movie okay. should have ended with him in jail for kidnapping and rape. Right. And extortion. So this is... This is unrealistic, cookie-cutter, 1980s fluff, this comedy. All right. right? I'm fine with that um, description. It's, it's, it's exactly what it is. Like, this is the number five spot because it's a nostalgia pick. When I was, like, you know, eight, nine years old and would see this and then all the way up to, like, the early, like, 91, 92 is when TBS was constantly playing this movie all the time at, like, 7.05 on you know, Saturday and Sunday nights and shit like that. And it was always on. I used to see this all the time. Like, my parents both watched it. Like, even, like, Larry, like, who hated comedies, kind of like you. Yeah. Um, and he uh, he used to watch this. And 
So it was just like, it felt like it was always on in my house. I've probably seen parts, like, this movie in part at least, like, 60 times in my life. In part. What a thing to admit. And... So, yes, it's unrealistic, and, like, the premises, like, in 2020 is obscene. Except that it was remade in 2018. Well, yeah, but they reversed the gender role, so everything's oh, good so now, it right? Okay. It do- hey, you think it doesn't in 2020 sometimes? So let me ask you. Um, so oh, me ask wait, you. wait, wait, okay, wait, okay, wait. Right. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So, <laughs> I'm not used to this. Right. <laughs> so... You just sit there and look at the person condescendingly or just look at your phone like until they get done talking about the movie that you don't like. Right, I'm doing it. Like that's that's how I that's how I handle it. And <laughs> so anyway, I think that the principles in this, particularly Goldie Hawn, I think this is one of Goldie Hawn's better performances. In terms of, like, uh, like overall. Like, I think that her physical comedy in terms of, like, you know, the different pratfalls, like, the, the movements, her facial expressions are definitely the best comedy that comes out of the movie. Um, I think her physical comedy is really good. Like, there's that scene with the kids, like, throwing stuff at her face and she has that catatonic stare that she's doing with the right. mouth agape and... Um, like, I think that scene's, like, still, like, even, like, I didn't laugh at this movie like I did when I was probably, like, a young kid. But, like, that was one of the few scenes that, like, actually made me, like, kind of chuckle and laugh, like, this time around. Um, and I think the the kids watching it this time around, like, um, like the kids are actually, as obnoxious as they are, are really good in their roles. They're really funny. I and, agree with the Goldie Hawn assessment, too. I think she does a good job. In this yeah. Um, so, and it's, like, I think... Um, Mike Haggerty, who plays Dean Prophet's friend, who, like, everybody's seen Mike Haggerty before, like, in some movie or another. Like, right. the, his, he has the classic, like, walrus look to him and the mustache and everything. And, um, I think Haggerty's, like, really funny in his role. In, in his role. I think that this version of Kurt Russell. For all the flaws of the character. And in the 80s, this was more acceptable because, yes, unrealistic. And you're right, of course. Like, if you take it, like, at face value, criminal and all these other things. But, I mean, there's the element of Kurt Russell in the characters he played. There's a through line in a lot of his characters in the 80s of the dickish pig. Like, and I don't think he's any better as a dickish pig in this movie because i think that's the thing is like yeah like he's done all these things and it's fucking terrible but at the same time i think his character grows as just as much as her character does at the same time um that, that's like kind of like the the point of the movie to some degree is that it's like while he's trying to take revenge he's actually healing himself in some ways um by having something to care about again and having that family unit and this is the fucking 80s where it was like it was because everybody was like it was what? What is it like? A, this assumption era. So it's like, you know, this is a very kind of like, like, like blue collar families love this movie because it like made fun of like rich people so much. So it was like completely acceptable back in the eighties for this kind of movie to happen, where the 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 rich woman like you know like bitched all the time. Got her comeuppance. Yeah, right. right her comeuppance is to get kidnapped and raped. <laughs> That's blue collar. That's right. Blue. Well, I mean, I think you're overselling it to some degree, like in the sense of like, 
I'm just calling a spade a spade, buddy. That's because he is. has the chance to actually like force himself on her and doesn't like like physically rape her at one point. The movie actually takes great pains to show that he's not going to have sex with her like against her will. He's just going to what does he tell his friend like play with her and pretend that like oh make like, her we his always... slave is what he tells his friend. Well, no, he talks specifically about the sex part of it though. The sex part doesn't happen until they actually go on a date and right, and she actually like has some kind of feelings for him. He, he just pretends, like, you know, that he's going to, like, you know, want to have sex with her just to, like, kind of make her, you know, uncomfortable, you know, which is awful enough on its own. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, but well, it, to force her to sleep on the couch. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, but still has sex with her under the pretense that they've been married and had four children together. Yeah, but there's there's right. And I do think they are, there's a couple scenes where they kind of show that like the guilt that he feels over like now that he's actually like started to himself have feelings that like he feels some kind of guilt over the whole thing and is worried about it like all falling apart on him and stuff like that. But look, it's on it's it's, it's an unrealistic premise. Um you know, the whole movie. Anyway, I think that um you know, it's a it's a clear 80s message that like, you know, as dumb as it is, as like money isn't everything, you know, and, you know, family's good. Um, you know, it's this holdover kind of like hippie ish thing in the 80s that like, you know, this kind of like 70s mentality. Except I think. that she's the rich one and they still have the money at the end. Right. It's happy ending. <laughs> Right, because money is everything, is the end result. Of the well, movie. no, it didn't. I don't know if that's necessarily how the movie was trying to portray it. but All right. So anyway, I think it's, I still think there's stuff, especially with Goldie Hawn, and I think a lot of stuff with the kids and some of the, like, the, um, some of the minor characters, like, you know, Edward Herman and stuff like that, that, um, and some of Roddy McDowell's, um, like, exp- like, you know, his, like, mannerisms and facial expressions, like, as the, like, put-upon butler, I think that are really funny still. Like, I, th- I think they're t- wor- they're chuckle-worthy to me, and, like I said, this is a nostalgia pick, and I know you've always hated this movie, so that's why it ended up getting chosen, because you picked these five movies, right. like, that out of this list of 70 or so. And, um, so this is the five, it's the nostalgia spot, it's the worst movie that's on this list to me. But, um, I still watched it again, I still... F- found some things worth laughing over that's cool i'm glad <laughs> i didn't laugh at all yeah. next time i watch excalibur i'll think of you <laughs> watching right. overboard somewhere yeah. yeah so you good you done yeah with the overboard all right mm-hmm. so moving on to number four we have strange days 1995 directed by Catherine bigelow starring rafe fines ralph and- fines. ralph yeah. that was rafe i don't think that's true i've said rafe for 30 years of my life i think Pretty it's short. rafe it's Ray Fines, okay. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, that dude, uh, Angela Bassett, Juliette Lewis, Tom Sizemore. He didn't include him, and I can't remember his name, but the villain from The Crow is... Oh, yeah, yeah. I can't remember his name. Yeah, yeah. The medium villain in right. this movie. Uh, has a 62% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 73% from audiences. You want to... It's spelled like Ralph. It is, but I'm pretty sure you say it, Rafe. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, well, he, his real... So maybe it is because it's a Ralph Nathaniel Twizzleton Wickham Fines is his full name. That's a long so name. So it's probably not said Ralph if that's his full name. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Rafe. 
Okay. Uh, 62% from critics, 73% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about it and why you like it so much? Okay, so this movie um, is follows a former cop uh, named Lenny Nero. And Lenny Great Nero, name, by the way. It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lenny Nero is a good name. Um, as he's moved into this um, illegal trade. This, so this movie's set in the future, even though it was 95. It's set in this futuristic environment of the, night, the end of 1999, getting ready to turn into 2000, um, which is one of the dumber things in the movie to me. But, um, but he's involved in this, like, future, like, you know, uh, virtual reality-like recordings where people the the users of these um devices can experience the emotions and past experiences of other people so they put this like device on their head and they call it wire tripping and you um you put the device on your head and you can like you know they they insert a recording from someone else and you can experience so the idea is that like you know there's a big porn element to the whole thing but then there's also like you know kind of like more normal sweeter like everyday emotions like you know meeting someone for the first time and falling in love and all these other kind of things um so he deals in this black market like you know dealing with this stuff so ends up that um he receives this like one recording of this murder and um slowly with the help of his friend who's like a bodyguard slash chauffeur played by angela bassett and her name's mace yep and um they he he receives this one murder um that kind of like shocks him and he starts kind of like looking into it and it kind of torn turns in this noir detective thing and as him and um his friend mace kind of slowly um and then his friend Max, too, is played by Tom Sizemore. Like, they start kind of investigating this. They uncover this kind of deeper conspiracy that involves a police killing of a popular black rapper slash political activist named Jericho One. And he was murdered execution style um, by the police. And they slowly unravel this, like, you know, how all these, like, murders of these different women and stuff are actually, like, tied into this, like, deeper conspiracy. And then it just plays itself out from there in terms of a detective movie. I don't necessarily think I need to spoil like who like the actual villain ultimately is of it because I think it's actually a pretty good surprise in some ways. Um, and yeah, so like you know, it's about them kind of like uncovering this conspiracy and um, and and saving the day, kind of. Just right. as just as the clock strikes, like you know, like midnight in the year two thousand. Yes. And so what I. So I'll, I'll start off with, like, a couple things that I think are just problematic about the movie. Oh, um, that's my job. You good. Okay. So I think it's I think it's a little too long. It, it's, it's a runtime of, like, two hours and 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, you feel that two hours and 40 minutes, too. You, you do. Like, when I rewatched it, I, I, was, I was watching it, but I, like, had, you know, some things I was just typing in front of me and stuff like that. So, um but yeah, it, it, you definitely feel it, and I think that there's, um, there's a couple of the things like the concept is a little cheesy in some areas of like the wire tripping stuff, um, in a couple of different scenes. I think the dialogue's a little clunky and too on point sometimes, um, like, and but I think that um, overall, I still really enjoyed this. I have really good memories of this movie. Because we saw this in the theaters, me and Bledsoe, and um, 
I remember seeing the trailer beforehand because this is in 94, early 95 when we were going to the theater all the time. The trailer was coming out and the trailer, um, something I still quote this day um, occasionally if it's if it seems appropriate is um, it's it's was it Rafe? Ray Fiennes? Fiennes, I gotta yeah. retrain myself now. Ray Fines is sitting there in the screen, just like staring at the audience. And says, "Have you ever jacked in? Have you ever wire tripped?" And it's the beginning of the trailer, and it's like I remember I downloaded the trailer, a small QuickTime version of the trailer in 1995, and it took me a day and a half to download because that's how slow the internet was back then with 14.4 connections, and I would actually have to use a special star code on my phone to block incoming calls because if right. the if somebody called you while you were trying to download something there was no restore download or anything back then you were just fucked and you had to start all over again so i'd have a special star code that i'd have to enter and then download something was it star 60 was yeah. that block calls? i can't i can't remember if it was 60 star, i think 70 I, for some reason i want to say it was like 71 or something like that but star 69 was you got the number. Of you got the, the number of the person who you. called you, right? That oh, was it was the, star seventy. I think you're right. Is seventy? I believe it was seventy. Yeah, I yeah. think it I was thinking it was like seventy or seventy one or something like that. But, anyway, but yeah, so like I, I have these like fond memories of that trailer and stuff like that, and then we saw the movie, and I, I liked the movie when I, and I still like the movie overall. So, I think the acting, I think you have a lot of talented actors in this. Um, I think that Fines and uh, is really good. I think Bassett's really good. I think Tom Sizemore for his flaws at times, plays this role very well. Um, I'm not a big fan of that crow guy necessarily, but for this role, it's fine. I think Juliette Lewis is okay in this, but um, uh, again, kind of serviceable in this role. I think the two villains, like the cops in the movie, which is played by Vincent D'Onofrio and, um, or what's his name? The guy you fit, recognize fit from everything. For, from everything. Right. Um he was in Grace Under Fire. He played the f- her love interest in that. Da- da- David Fincher or something like that is his name. Um, it's close to that. Yeah. Finchner or something like that. Finch- and F- Fitchner, I think, is right. Fitchner, yeah. And um, I think they're really great um, as the uh, as these just like evil, corrupt cops um, in the movie. I think that. Uh, the social dynamics of this movie in 2020 are just as powerful, if not more so, maybe than um, than 1985 in some ways. Uh, considering how much more awareness has been brought to uh, police uh, violence on uh, African Americans, uh, it actually was really disturbing to rewatch that scene for the first time in close to 25 years of Jericho one being executed. Considering what we've seen over the past you know five or six years um in terms of videos and um the ending was really hard to watch where there's kind of like this almost like riot and stuff like that and um the angela bass character is getting beat by the police and uh you know there's this kind of like riot type sequence and it's like it sprung to mind images of baltimore like you know a, a few years ago and like some of the stuff that like we saw coming from that um so I think it's a really, I think it's a really solid like noir. Um, when I don't think in 1985 I necessarily knew that terminology, I think it's a really kind of inventive, like sci-fi noir in the way that it deals with the investigation. I really like the investigative elements um, of the movie. 
I think, uh, but yeah, and then I have probably a couple more complaints, but I just think it's a really solid noir film that has good characters, generally solid acting throughout, and tells an interesting um, kind of labyrinthian plot of, like, this crime. Okay. So, out of all the movies on this list, this is the one that I have the widest gap of enjoyment for between like absolutely hating it in the nineties when it came out to agreeing with a lot of what you said, Mm -hmm. not quite as like much, but not absolutely like despising it. Like I I don't, I don't hate this movie watching it today. Mm -hmm. Now at the time I found it to be really cheesy um, you and I talked about this off air, and I still felt this is true. I think it's a really big misstep to set it only five years yeah. after when the movie aired, because watching it in the theater, it's like, okay, this is not like a realistic outcome to the next like four years of my life. No, I absolutely agree. They should have set it like 15, 20 years in the future, and it would have probably been better at the time period. Uh, just the backstory on this, though, is like Cameron actually, James Cameron developed the story on this, and um, he actually developed the story in like 1982. Yeah. And it was, and it was just dumb not to advance the timeline of the of the film to some later date rather than 2000. Well, I think it's the whole like, because they say 2K a couple of times, which they I found funny. Yeah, right. That in 95 they were using that terminology. Sure. But that's, you know, when they, I guess that's, it's important to them that, you know, the culmination of the millennium is the culmination of the plot. Sure. Um, it's very staged looking, which I don't like. You can tell that a lot of it's shot on backlots and sets, which feels really very it it feels very 90s and that's going to be something that i say a few times about some of these movies but it's got a very 90s feel to it and right. it's not something that i i'm not frank so i have a ton of notes that are in front of me because like uh, in terms to remind myself of like like uh my bullet points but what i have written down here is two 90s right number one it's 40 minutes 30 minutes too long agreed and there's some of the subplot elements that you could take out of this movie. It should have been 210. You roughly. can take out, so Philo something, whatever his name is, um, the crow bad guy's right. character, has this group of henchmen that work for him. And you could take the entirety of their characters out, with the exception of his one bodyguard, and you're fine. And you cut like 20 minutes out of the movie. Because it doesn't add anything, because all it is is them beating up Nero basically even though he's already gotten beaten up by other people so just take that out right as a noir story-wise it works pretty well um i think it also works kind of well as like a love story in some ways um both like unrequited or like lost love and like unrecognized like potential love Mm -hmm. and i think it works okay there i think only buoyed by the fact that you have such a talented cast yeah behind it and a, tr- a typically talented director directing the movie, but she does not do a good job here. Like she it's does not, not well directed. Um, Direction I have is a little melodramatic and lame at times. Right. Is my note because yeah. it should because you look at something like Blade Runner or I don't know I can't think of like a good Twelve Monkeys is a good analogy for this movie because it's also a sort of similar like near future I don't know dystopian thing going on with it and. 
12 monkeys does a good job of feeling number one dirty and real but also claustrophobic and it gives you the feeling of intensity and this movie doesn't do that because it's so many times again it just it it feels like you're watching like a sci-fi channel series from like 1996 it does and i think part of the problem with it is that she's trying to or Cameron or somebody is trying to press press a little too hard on the social aspects of the thing by um showing that um by trying to make it like reference the rodney king right like you know and the riots and all those kind of things and so it ends up feeling too modern at times and right. it feels like fake sci-fi. Yes. I mean, the, the scene where um, the cops are chasing Angela Bissett through the crowd mm-hmm. is one of the most poorly choreographed Agreed. and ridiculously overwrought scenes. Well, that's why it's my last note is because that's when I wrote that melodramatic right. line. It's just like yeah. they're shooting at her and these random people are just like dancing in between. Yeah them and her so they can get shot like it's so but it's weird though there's times where and it's like i get why bigelow ended up becoming such a well-known action director because there are times though like the sequence where the girl the very first like action sequence in the movie where the girl that has the videotape Right, is running from the cops yeah. iris yeah and she ends up on down they end up down the subway platform and she like is running and stuff like that that's a really well done action sequence that one there and it's like the, you can see where bigelow has it in her to actually direct action well look she's directed some great movies like near dark and point break and sure yeah i mean i'm not yeah. a fan of their the later stuff recent, right sure like stuff but those movies yeah. i love but i'm saying it's like you can see like where she's like talented at times but then there's times where it's like i think she's just really melodramatic yeah. and stuff like that i also don't like the dialogue in most of the movie i find the dialogue to be really like you you called it too on point i think that's a good way to say it but it's just not it's not naturalistic and it's not well crafted the actors elevate it though like to the point where it's like it's okay most of the time it's okay and then you just only sometimes notice how it's like really clunky yeah i think they elevate scenes i think i always even watching it this time was still just like a like a bunch of times at the there's a lot of angela bassett lines that if she weren't as good as she is at times yeah. it would be really bad i agree but so again like i watched it i actually watched it today mm-hmm. um i would not say that i hated it like it was fine mm-hmm. it's a movie that if you asked me i'd be like yeah it's a fine movie like it's it's okay which this is a big admission for frank because frank has shitted on this movie for the entire time i've ever known well him. understand that i saw this movie similar to you i saw this in a theater where it was a tuplex in western maryland when i was like hanging out with this girl mm-hmm. we were the only people in the theater and i walked out just absolutely like disgusted <laughs> with this movie i hated it so much uh-huh. and i hated everything about it and i think a lot of it was the fact that like my natural disinclination towards sci-fi but just also so many things like i it's it, it reminded me of um not in like story or anything but like california do you remember that movie california with a k with a k with brad pitt and juliet lewis and david company staged and Mm -hmm. and i hate juliet lewis like full admission juliet lewis is so weird in this movie because that's why i said she's just serviceable is because there's times i fucking hate her as an actress in this movie and there's other times where it's like i think she's good in the scenes but sometimes like 
but yeah, she she's a weird actress, and like generally, I do not like her either. I think she's great as Mallory, in that I think it's the best role she's ever had. Yeah, um, it and, is because she's an awful person, and that's just her. <laughs> maybe I mean I think she's. Great. I'm sure that I think Julia Lewis is a perfectly fine person. And, eh, I think she's probably crazy. Yeah, um, uh, you know, some. <laughs> <laughs> so, never mind. <laughs> Can we or, move on? Do you have anything well, else? You'd well, like to... You're the one that was talking. All right, I'm done. <laughs> Do you have anything else you want to say about Strange? The, just so you know, like this, if Frank were in control, this is how it would be all the time. Because Frank will sit over here sometimes, and I can just tell he's done, like just talking about this movie, and just won't sit and just kept, and I just keep talking, and he's just so done and ready to move. Well, on. Well, only also because I feel like we kind of agree on this movie now and we so do. it, it right. sort of defeats the purpose of the right. list okay and we got so much to and move on to sure yeah the next one particularly I'm, I'm oh assuming. my god i hate this movie so much right uh so yeah. number three on chris's list is 1996's swingers directed by doug lyman uh starring written and starring john written by and starring john favreau vince vaughn ron livingston and heather graham uh, it's an 87% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 89% from audiences. Let's see uh, what you say about this movie and why you like it. So this follows this um, kind of transplant, a New Yorker um, who's now living in Los Angeles. He is um, struggling with like his stand-up comedy career and his um, getting over his relationship, the woman that he left behind in New York. Uh, in order to try to move out to Los Angeles and make it. Uh, the character's name is Mike, and he um, has a group of friends um, in Los Angeles. Uh, one of them is Trent, who's this kind of, God, like womanizing, like, you know, like kind of fast slash smooth talker who talks his ways out of situations a lot and is kind of overbearing and obnoxious. Um and then he has his friend that is uh, played by um, Rod Livingston, who is kind of like his the trailblazer for Mike, who is the guy that moved out there before him and is kind of like, you know, uh, trying to like make it and stuff like that. Just you have that backwards. Mike you, is Ron Livingston's trailblazer. Is he? Yeah, Ron Livingston says the only reason I moved out here. Oh, right, it's because you were you doing so well, right? Yeah, yeah, so you're well. right. I was, I was reversing the lines, right? Um, well, I can it. tell why you love it. Oh, so I guess the idea is that, um, I guess no, I guess it's like Ron Livingston's character is the one that understands how to deal with the breakup, um, and that's what Mike relies on him for. So the the movie starts and Mike like can't get over this this ex like you know she's moving on with her life apparently in New York and dating somebody and he's boring the hell out of his really nice friend um, played by Ron Livingston about like how he just can't get over it and he can't move on and et cetera et cetera and that's like one of the through lines of this movie is the idea that Mike is trying to get back out there and get start dating again and he can't get over his ex and um uh, that's that's one of the through lines here. The other through line is the idea that, like, the emptiness of the experience of Los Angeles um, and how, like, you know, it's it's a lot of vignettes about, like, you know, how, you know, everybody's just trying to find the next trend, the next big thing. They go to a party that's packed and or a club that's packed and they walk in immediately and the joke is like, oh, it's dead here. You know, Um, they're all just looking for the next life experience. 
Um, and that's kind of like embodied in the idea of Trent, the Trent character um, specifically. So the movie just follows is really it's really like a series of like a lot of vignettes, really more than it is like uh, it's it's cobbled together into a, a cohesive story. But it is just a series of vignettes uh, about these guys living together and like them trying to get Mike to get back out there. And uh, there's a couple of subplots where they almost like get into a fight one night at a bar and one of like Mike's friend and Trent's friends pulls a gun out and on these guys um, that a boy named Sue. Right. Yes. Sue. Right. And Sue pulls this gun out. And um, I think it's a funny scene, like, you know, um, uh, with a lot of 90s references like thrown into the whole scene. But um, so, like, you know, these kind of things happen. And eventually, like, you know, Mike, um, you know, kind of like, you know, after this, like one experience of trying to call this girl um, and leave a message on her answering machine that he meant and got her number at the at the bar um goes into a downward spiral like you know over his ex and finally ends up coming out of it some and ends up meeting a girl towards the end of the movie played by heather graham and um once he meets her and they hit it off like there's this healing process that kind of starts and you end up at the end seeing this reversal of fortune where trent's kind of like you know kind of come to this like psychic realization that i think his life is vapid and empty and um you know mike is now like the one that like has some sort of meaning instilled in his life again and is like kind of there for trent like the ron livingston character was for him and um you know and and that's pretty much the end of the movie is you get this sense that like he's going to have a successful relationship probably with the heather graham character um maybe it's not like the 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 grand romance of life but it's like he's he's better now and he can like actually go succeed in his career in his life let me ask you a question yeah um so it's interesting that that's how you take the end of the movie because to me the end of the movie signifies that trent has lost his power and mystique over mike because mike has moved on and suddenly trent's boisterous personality and all the things that he like kind of idolized it's not as appealing to mike anymore at all right now it's just like it's just an act agree but i think you see in in trent though like i i know i agree completely with you i think you're exactly right on that reading but i also think that trent has realized maybe because mike doesn't like look up to him as much anymore there's a difference in the way trent looks like there's there's a little bit more haggardness to him and maybe you're right. Maybe that's supposed to be Mike's way he sees him now. But I mean, even the way Trent acts, it feels like there's some sort of self-acknowledgement to the whole thing of like that he's kind of just kind of a loser in like a like playing at being a, a winner. And um, it, it, at least it plays out like that in the way that Vince Vaughn plays it, which I think if about the things I like about this movie, I. Um, and I have a feeling this might be, I don't know, maybe this is probably one of the big areas maybe we'll disagree, I think, is I think this is maybe, like, this is what puts Vince Vaughn on the map. Agreed. And it's the best thing Vince Vaughn has, maybe one of the best things Vince Vaughn has ever done in, um, in his entire life. He's done some good things, but this is, like, this character fits him so goddamn well. This is the best thing that he did up until the second stage of Vince Vaughn's acting career. 
Sure, in like when he like got five in the past five or six years. Right. Yeah, right. So, um, yeah, because the movie we just watched this past year, um, the uh, what's his name's movie, uh, I really liked him in Brawl at Cell, Brawl and Cell Block '99 yeah. or whatever. Like those kind of roles that right. he's taking on are really good. So yeah, the first half of his career, like this thing that puts him on the map, is his best role, I think. Um, I can't think of a character in a movie who's a dick, who's just a complete and utter scumbag. And douchebag in every way, but is still as charming as this character. Um, it's like I've met people that's wanted to be this person before. One of our friends, <laughs> right, right? Yeah, that's 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 true. Um, and it's like he's so damn charming in this, despite what a just a fucking asshole he is. Um, and. Yeah, so it's like the, the so the, the the scene I referenced where Sue pulls the gun on these on these guys who they call um House of Pain because of the way that they're dressed referencing the old um rap group and towards the end of the movie like you know when Mike's like one in isolation cuz he's heartbroken over his ex he um when he comes back out they he goes over to their their apartment and House of Pain is now over there playing NHL 94 with them and um because trent's made friends with they ran into him later again that night and trent's now made friends with him and sue's like yeah that boy can talk and it's like i think it creates this character who um is really fascinating in a lot of ways in the trent character like you know because there is like an affability to him and that's part of that's due to the emptiness um of his life where he can just like ingratiate himself and make friends with people really easily and um there is something uh noteworthy about that i mean i think uh, as a person i think he's really good i think favreau actually really gets to show off his acting chops really well um in this in terms of like now look it's a lot of it's um whiny um throughout most of it absolutely but I think he really gets the show off like what he's capable of. And I don't think he's gotten that many opportunities to show it off in a lot of ways since. I think he's capable much more even now than 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 he's ever given. I mean, I know he's a famous director now as opposed to um like acting a lot. Like, you know, he just gets kind of small roles um in his own movies a lot of times. But I think he's capable of a lot more, and I think this movie shows it um that he's capable of a lot. Um I think he's really good in terms of his um of of really slow burn acting in scenes um where it's like nuance of facial expression and um and body movement like I think he's really good at um I think particularly like the scene where he's like heartbroken and is like holed up in his apartment and Livingston comes in and I think that whole scene like plays off really well I think he has like this manic energy to him that he can show that he shows he has a lot so I think Favreau's like just i think he's killer in this movie like as an acting performance yes his performance, maybe not a character but his performance a, is the best thing in the movie yeah um i think that this reminds me of my teenage years so i think there's a little bit of nostalgia in it in sense in the, in the sense of the references right so it's like taxi driver reservoir dogs you know um nh nhl and genesis like uh like i used to play with um one of our friends eric wadden his brother um, I used to go down to his house and play, uh, cause I had a super Nintendo, but we used to play Genesis on the NHL like all the time. And there's like 
hilarious references to NHL in this when they're playing it at one point where um it was it's sue always plays the la kings um los angeles kings the, the, the team at the time there um and trent because he's an asshole is always trying to like hurt like he's like hold on like let me and he like fucking uh knocks wayne gretzky down makes him bleed um what does he say L- little 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 wayne's legs are shaking that's that's what he says um <clears throat> I think there's really funny things like that. There's stuff I quote to this day, um, particularly with uh, one of our friends where uh, about the whole, like, you're a big bear with fangs and claws. You got these fucking claws, man. You don't even know it. Like, you know, what is it? You're so money, you don't even know it. Like, right. oh. um, there's that kind of stuff, which I think is hilarious. It's obnoxious. But I think that's where the comedy comes from, is, like, that you're supposed to see that it's obnoxious. Um, Are you? Yeah, I think there's, like, really kind of, like, things that you don't like particularly in comedy. Um, a lot of times it makes you cringe, um, makes you cover your eyes, like you were saying off air earlier, is I think there's some really cringe-inducing comedic scenes in this movie, particularly the scene with the, um, um, where Mike can't sleep with the waitress when they're in Lo- Las Vegas. I think that's really cringeworthy to watch, um, of him slowly walking over and knocking on that door and interrupting Trent in the trailer of, like, getting ready to get laid by this other waitress. Um, then there's the answering machine scene, which is really cringeworthy. Yes. Um, getting shot down at the bar um, is really, like, hard to watch a little bit, like, of, of, of him trying to, like, you know, uh, getting caught in a lie um in terms of trying to pick a girl up and like her realizing he's trying to play himself as successful but he actually came in for an application at starbucks or whatever it was like the week before um so i think there's a lot of cringe in this humor which i think is really funny but i know isn't your cup of tea necessarily i don't know um, I find this movie funny right so i i think it's a i think it's a funny movie i think it's a a relic of its time absolutely but i think it has some really great performances by some guys when they're really young that ended up being really some degree important um in a film later on and um and yeah i I think it still holds up as a good comedy i think to some degree a heartwarming message um even if it's like not utterly completely realistic in the sense of like you can move on with your life and things can get better and everybody goes through hard times and eventually like you know you just gotta deal with it and get through it and you'll come out the other side eventually that's cool which is a trite message but i i think it still works like for the movie itself so i'm done so saw this movie when it came out and loved it as a 18, 19 year old kid, however old I was. You I sound was. like you're getting ready to cut a Heaster promo. <clears throat> so, so, saw it, loved it. <clears throat> Sorry. Got Saw it again several years later. Not so much. I think that you're supposed to think that Trent is cool. I don't think you're supposed to think Trent is. I think you're supposed to aspire to be Trent for the majority of the movie. I think that everyone in the movie aspires to be Trent. I think he's a terrible character. I don't like a lot of the dialogue. I don't find a lot of it funny. I think it's incredibly poorly directed. Um, which is interesting because I think that Doug Lyman went on to be like a pretty good director. But I think it looks like shit most of the time. I think it's way too 
reverential and referential to the things that it inspires especially like the whole dynamic of the swing culture of the mid 90s which feels like a blip and felt like a blip i think at the time Mm -hmm. maybe it was really important in los angeles but i don't have any connection to that um again things that i thought were really cool when i saw when i was a kid like Mm -hmm. i don't find very cool now i think it's just kind of lame um the only good part of the movie to me is the last 20 minutes or so like i think it's really uh, the point where he meets graham in the bar and they have their initial conversation and then to the end where trent is reduced to like what he actually is which is just kind of a caricature without any real charm or Mm -hmm. persuasion or whatever that that part i enjoyed again watching it this time but everything else i don't know oh yeah i forgot i mockingly quote our little boys all gross up yeah i do that all the time too it's really just that one friend of ours that i actually use those lines on all the time yeah um because that's who wants to be trent (laughs) um I don't know, man. I think like you and I have had this. I don't. I don't want to say disagreement, but we have a difference of opinion about a movie like Clerks, where I can watch Clerks and I remember loving Clerks when I was a kid. Yeah. I don't care to watch Clerks anymore. Same thing with Swingers. I don't care to watch Swingers anymore. I think Swingers holds up much more than Clerks ever does. To me, it's the same thing. Yeah. I think they're both like relics of their time is a good way to put it. Yeah. I think that Swingers is I don't know. I still think Swingers holds a still holds some sort of semblance of message and meaning that Clerks just doesn't have anymore. I think it's a very self-involved, self-indulgent message. I I, I think you're. I, I just think you're. I I think in some degree. I can't remember if I texted you. If this is the one I texted your son about the other night or not. Um, when I was saying this, but it's like I think you've you're no, I think this was a different movie. I think you've you you personalized somehow like this movie in some way, like in, in at least like your your recollection of it or your or your time of your life or something like uh, with Maybe, this movie. Yeah, possible because like I don't I never thought that like I was supposed to think any of those people were cool. Listen, I how old were you when you saw this movie? Uh, sixteen then. I saw when it came out on video. You have no idea how many people walked around. Number one, things like Vegas Baby Vegas that come from this movie uh-huh. have become. I mean, I heard it in like different. Like I've I heard it, but I don't. Maybe it, I wasn't as familiar with hearing it. Many people say it. I mean, but. that kind of stuff, like your money, baby. You don't even like all that stuff yeah. became so ubiquitous and like. Mm-hmm common culture where that wasn't my experience just said that shit all the time i saw the money thing creep in the pop culture but i never heard people going i mean people that like i knew personally like saying that stuff and then the vegas baby vegas thing has been adopted by i mean las vegas for the most part like that was their yeah yeah tagline on commercials for for years yep and it's just like this and you know what it is probably personalized because it's something where if I love something and then it becomes super popular, it becomes harder to love it. But also because like I grew up past that and it's like, I don't know. Like I thought that it was, it's, it felt cool. Like that felt like what me and my friends did was like go out and go to different places and try and meet women and whatever. And then like that, just not, not my yeah, thing. That's interesting. I mean, like I, 
I don't know. I guess I always like kind of like saw the movie's message not having that lifestyle at the time at the age of 16 or anything like that. Like, you know, like that I always saw the message of the movie being about the emptiness of that lifestyle. Um, I mean, I, I fully understood the whole idea of like, well, we're going to go to this place, but we're going to go to this place first. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to go to this place and get something to eat. And then we're going to go to this place and we'll probably stay there for like a half hour and then leave. It's like, yeah. right. Like, that's just what you do. Right. I mean, and I, I mean, I guess I just saw like, you know, I not having that lifestyle. I just saw that that was criticizing that lifestyle to some degree. Except it works for some of them. Does it? Yeah, sure. If you're not looking to get married or have a, you know, serious relationship, why wouldn't you do that kind of stuff? There's nothing wrong with that. Sure. But the message of the movie ultimately is that. For him. For him. But, I, but he's the movie. I mean, ultimately, the the winner. <laughs> See, that's I, I I love the Trent character so much, but not because he's a good, not because he's like a good person or a good role model or anything, but because he's such a good heel. But he's a good friend. You're because all I thought was like you're you're the big winner, Mikey. Like you're the big winner. Like he's such a just a grating fucking prick. I, but he's but, a really good friend to Mike. In his own way, yes. In the in the way that he knows how to be a friend, right, he is because he's trying to support him. He's sure. trying to get him to, but like, his, but his way of supporting of his him fun. is trying to get him laid, right? Because that's what that's all he knows. Because that's him, right? That's how he would get over it. So he tries, yeah, and in, in his own way, he's trying to help. Um, I don't know. I did not enjoy watching this movie. I think it's a really good examination of a bunch of friends that have different values in life, and, um. You know, obviously, I think it takes a perspective by having Mike be the main character and makes judgments on, like, what the right way of life should probably be to some degree without necessarily making condemnations, but certainly judgments on those other characters. And I think that it's I think they're like, you know, they're not like completely complex, deep characters, but I think they're interesting enough characters that it um that it's enough to hold attention. And I still think there's funny stuff in it. Yeah, that's cool. So, on to our number two movie. So, number two on our list this evening is 1977's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Richard Dreyfuss, Terry Garr, Melinda Dillon, Francois Truffaut, and Bob Balaban. It is a 95 from Critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 85 from Audiences. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about this movie and what you love about it. Okay, so... The movie starts, there's kind of two parallel stories going on um, early on where there's a group of research scientists from like all these like uh, varying backgrounds that are investigating these strange appearances of items like all around the world, like in deserts and stuff like that. Um, And uh, one of the scientists, the one that's played by Truffaut, um, he... um, starts like using like music in order to um try to like work on like a means of communication to some degree with um as part of their work and because i think they all realize that there's something like you know um like uh not supernatural but like extraterrestrial extraterrestrial right yeah Yeah, they, they they recognize in indigenous peoples that have encountered this extraterrestrial thing like there's a similar 
sequence of tones that they are adapting into their music. Right. And then it's like the Balaban character who was a what, cartographer, right? And yes. like he eventually realizes that like their responses, like he realizes that some form of communication. Um, and so while all that's going on, there's also uh, the character that is um, played by uh, Richard Dreyfus named Roy. And Roy's wife is Terry Gar. He has two kids, correct? Three. Three. Three kids. And three kids. It's so funny that, like, I can't remember how many kids people Ever. have, which is, um, you know, as, as somebody who doesn't have children, like, uh, probably makes sense. But <clears throat> so he has three kids. And his wife's kind of like, um, they, they, they early on, it's the most, I think, maybe problematic but interesting part of this movie is that they portray her as kind of like a like a slightly nagging wife um he um uh he ends up like uh, going out on the job one night he ends up encountering a ufo and then there is a third kind of story that's going on with a woman a single mother named jillian um who's young son who i don't know what what do you estimate his age like four years old or something like that or like you know uh, yeah something like that like uh, the, the little boy is and like um has been visited by like kind of like the extraterrestrial like presence and um so they both end up kind of like experiencing things jillian and roy they end up kind of forming a connection through this roy becomes obsessed as does jillian um to some degree uh, maybe to a lesser degree earlier on, uh, with the idea of um, seeing the, the the UFO again and like you know this this extraterrestrial uh, presence slash threat, and becomes so obsessed that he starts like recreating things that he's seeing in his mind or in some sort of like memory, and he ends up trying to recreate this mountain basically. Um, that he sees in his head through all these different means. Like, one of the more famous scenes in the movie is, like, he's sitting there at dinner with his family, and there's mashed potatoes on the plate, and he starts sculpting the mashed potatoes into the shape of this mountain. And um, eventually kind of becomes so obsessed that he, he, he appears crazy to his wife, um, who ends up leaving him, um, taking the kids away to her sister's place. And... Um, Meanwhile, Jillian's son has been abducted by the extraterrestrials, and um, she doesn't have him anymore. It eventually kind of all culminates where he's uh, in enabled by seeing the mountain that he's seen in his memory on the television on a news story. They go to the site where it's all being evacuated by the military um, to try to get people away from that area because they think that's going to be the spot of the landing for the extraterrestrials. Meanwhile, there's a handful of people that are drawn beyond Roy and Jillian to that location. Um, they find these people. They try to get them out. Roy and Jillian and another person who I can't remember that character's name, like end up like um, escaping from the military and Roy and Jillian end up with the scientists by the end when the extraterrestrials actually land and make first contact and I mean that's pretty much the end of the movie, where it's like Roy ends up um, being one of the ones that goes on the, um, the spacecraft, and that's where the movie pretty much ends. Yep. Um. So that's the basic plot of it. Um. I um. I have not seen this movie. In. 
I would estimate at least 30 years mm. um, before I watched watched it this time. Um, and I would say there's some elements of it to me that I think are just as captivating to me now as when I was a kid. So this was a Larry Gasberry movie, and for those that have never listened before, um, my father and I... Um, he was an alcoholic and we had a tumultuous kind of like relationship. And, um, there are certain movies that I don't like that my father liked. Um, what are they? Logan's run, flash Gordon, Conan, the barbarian, um, a lot of fantasy. I love, right. Yeah. It's a lot, it's a lot of, um, fantasy and sci-fi that I have like things against. Uh, we, um, we had very little in common except for, um, yeah, I guess it's alien movies to some degree, like a lot of times, like the, like the, the aliens franchise, like movies, um, uh, X-Files, uh, this movie, um, some horror movies, like people under the stairs and stuff like that, like that we had in common, but we didn't have a lot of overlap in the things that we liked necessarily, but this was certainly one of them, um, that he used to watch this every single time it was on television, um, so I saw this movie at least again in pieces of it many times, like when I was young. Um, I think there's things that like watching it this time that like I was like uh, really fascinated by just in terms of I, I, I as I'm watching some of these movies again as we do this podcast, and I don't know if you've had this experience, like. I think about some of these movies I haven't seen in 30, 35 years where I realize like, holy shit, this probably like affected me in some way. Like some of some of the stuff in this movie, like in terms of like how I think about the world and stuff sure. like that. And I, I forgot about the scene early on in this movie where um, the air force is the, the pilots are reporting that they see a UFO early on. And the, guy that's like the dispatcher basically for like the air force like is asking them if they want to report seeing an unidentified flying object and they end up saying like no i don't want to report this and like the disinformation i i think like that scene i i forgot about it but it was always there in my head at the same time like that scene and it's like there's little things like that that i see and it's like shit no wonder like i'm so distrustful and cynical <laughs> at times like because this is the shit that i grew up on um but it's like i think that element of it the scientist element still intrigues me like the idea that like these scientists of all different backgrounds are kind of coming together to try to investigate this idea i find to be a really fascinating narrative concept it's probably more interesting to me to some degree than the Roy Neary stuff. Um, like the, the, the family man, the household type stuff. Um, although I do find Dreyfus's performance to be engaging, um, like throughout it, uh, overall, mm. I, um, it's like, like the, those characters, the Jillian and the Roy character have what it, to them is like tantamount to like a religious experience, like this kind of like ultimate spiritual experience, um, they become zealots, basically, and I and I think that Dreyfus really, I think Dreyfus really nails that element of it um, overall, like of the guy who's thinks he's losing his mind, but is also completely confident in himself in terms of what he experienced and what he's 
feeling to some degree. And I think that dichotomy he does really well in this movie of like, you know, being both confused and scared, but also confident and assured in his beliefs. Um, and I think that's a tough thing to do um, a lot of times. And I think he does it really well um, overall. The oddest part of the movie watching it again was the disintegration of that marriage and this kind of like fledgling romance between him and the Jillian character. Um, and we've discussed this a little bit over text one night, I guess. And, um, or maybe that was you and me and Frankie that like, I was like giving my theories to, I'm not sure, um, about that. But, um, uh, but yeah, I find that to be the oddest thing in all of this. Um, and I, I do want to talk about that separately, like when I'm done here. Um, I think the thing that really stands out in my mind, though, is this movie is such a slow burn, and it is a slow burn. Like, granted, like uh, absolutely, mm. um, it's it's probably a little too much of a slow burn given the runtime of it. But I think the last 20, 30 minutes of that movie is absolutely magical still, and that's the part that I'm like captivated by more than anything else when I was a kid and now, and I think that experience of like them actually meeting the aliens for the first time like it's the thing that i remembered most about this movie from the time i saw it when i was probably five years old till now is that whole sequence of events and i think that spielberg captures i want to say i've mentioned this maybe once before on the podcast but um You'll know what I'm talking about. That Rudolph Otto book that I read. Um, oh, the Numinous sort of Yeah, thing? right. Like, yeah. It's, it's the idea of the holy. And he posits this idea of the, the what he calls the Numinous. It's this um, mixture of fear and awe that comes with experiencing the unknown. And he equates it to uh, more of like to the experience of feeling God. Um, and like, but I get the sense here, I think. Spielberg captures the fear and the awe, not only through, I think, the Roy character and, and the mixed emotions that he has, like, after he has his first encounter, to the um, to the final scene. And I think the final scene in the way that they are all extremely wary, but extremely happy but extremely tentative in terms of their distance. And I think everything about the way he crafts that scene captures that feeling of awe and fear and joy, like all at once throughout those 20 minutes. And I think it's powerful filmmaking that last, like that, that last sequence. Um, I think it does what a lot of movies can't do and try to do sometimes and i think that i find it refreshing even now that a lot of alien movies are always about the horrors of aliens and this actually has a feeling of hopefulness behind the idea of contact and that it doesn't have to be this horrifying, frightening experience and that there is a way for two distinct um, 
you know, civilizations, whatever species to end up communicating and finding some sort of means of communication and common ground enough to forge a relationship going forward. And I find that refreshing and I find it hopeful and maybe it's silly, but, um, in, in some ways that that could happen, but I, I, I like that about this movie, um, compared to a lot of other alien movies. And I guess that's it. Okay. Um, I agree with some of that, I guess. I think this movie is really boring. I don't think it's really... I appreciate, like, all that you've taken from it, but I don't really feel like it's about anything, necessarily. I think it's kind of a waste of two hours. I think it looks really nice. Um... I kind of like the ending, but I also feel like the ending's just sort of anticlimactic. Like, he just sort of goes away. Like, he leaves his yeah. Yeah. wife, his children. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about at some point here soon, but is that element of it. But So, I understand. It's interesting, like, the disintegration of his marriage, because he's not happy being a father and a husband. I mean, no, he doesn't have any connection with any of those people, like... He just wants to go see Pinocchio, and no one cares about seeing Pinocchio. They just want to go play miniature golf, and he's got a job that I'm, you don't really get the impression he particularly likes that much, and I mean, he's an unhappy guy, so there's some wish fulfillment aspect there of, like, meeting the brawless, hippie woman that's just about love, and... Well, it's the idea of starting over, too. <clears throat> yeah, shares a connection, and then, like, just abandoning that too to like go off and just kind of see what space has to offer. I find it to be really plotting in a lot of points. Like for every moment in this movie, that's good. There's long periods of this movie where it's just like, just kind of banal, you know? And I understand that whole like feeling of hopefulness and whatever that the ending has. And I, I, I sort of agree with that. But it takes so long to get there that I just don't care by the time it gets there. And one of the things that, like, we've... And we've talked a lot about my feelings about science fiction. I don't like science fiction that tries too much to embrace the science of it. Like, I want the fiction. You know, I don't care about them playing the organ and having, like, the friggin' simon board light up with like the different colors oh like, see i love that yeah it just doesn't it doesn't and get you know me. how i am i typically don't give a fuck about like the science elements of things like i don't i'm neither of us are those type of people necessarily and this isn't it's going to sound disparaging and it probably will be but it's like i i don't even mean it to be it's not a judgment but it's like I don't care about the phaser in Star Trek and how the phaser is made or how the phaser is used or the science of the right. phaser. Um, I care about the idea of how the phaser is used by the character and what that means for the story and et cetera, et cetera. Like, I don't give a fuck about the science of any of it. Um, that's chicken go away like it doesn't matter to me like you know when people mark out about like the the soundlessness of space like in firefly or the new versions of the star trek movies it's like okay i guess that's cool i don't care right like you know like that none of that stuff like i don't care about any of that i care about the story that's being told and um but i actually think that the science of some of this stuff 
which I normally don't care about, is actually cool narrative elements to some of this. Like, I like, and maybe, I don't know, maybe that's why I do the job that I do, but it's like the idea of the communication aspect of this movie, I find riveting. Like, the way that they're trying to build communication. Um, the way that you're trying to build language between another species, I yeah. think, is, is is fascinating. And I think one of the most iconic things I, ever is is that is that tone that's used in this like the five note tone that like is that john williams creates for this is is um is astounding and the different ways they use it like you know throughout the movie i think is really interesting and fascinating and he apparently created like 72 or something like that different it was a lot yeah before they found before they found the one that they thought was yeah which is neat listen this is a well-directed movie it's beautiful at points you see a whole lot of Spielberg kind of coming into his own and sort of learning his way of using like visual language to get ideas across all that stuff. Like Mm -hmm. I understand this is the one movie on this list where I look at it and I say, it's truly a work of art that I appreciate from a technical perspective. I just don't like, there's almost nothing about this movie in watching it that I enjoy. Hmm. Like, no time when I'm watching this movie where I'm, like, invested or I care. Yeah. I don't like him. I don't like his wife. I don't like his kids. I don't particularly like the Jillian character. Let me ask you this real quick, though. It's a thought <clears throat> that I had after I watched this movie. Just a random thought. If he would have met Kate Capshaw by this point, Kate Capshaw would have been J- Jillian, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. He's got a type. It's actually really interesting that Terry Gar is the nagging, like, harpy of a wife. She 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 was pushing for herself to play Jillian. Because that feels like more of the role that she would have been. Right, yeah. Especially because she was such, like, a sex symbol right. around this time and, like, into yeah. the 80s. And just to have her be just this contrarian... Mm-hmm non-imaginative like no soul the conversation yeah that's right it was through frankie we ended up having the conversation it was my point was that i thought it was like some sort of like you know you know man in his like 30s who was like kind of done and i'm not i don't know if i'm far biographically i don't know if i'm far off from this is like kind of tired of like his relationship or like you know the family man like lifestyle and is looking for something different and this is some sort of wish fulfillment on a biographical level of like, you know, for every man in his 30s or 40s that like is kind of done with like, you know, the point that he's at in his life and is like looking for like the the next, like you said, brawless, like hippie, right. you know, and a way to start over and like have a different life and do it all over again. Um, I feel there's some sort of wish watching it now at my age now I, it's there's some sort of wish fulfillment going on a biographical level um, that's happening maybe except that he was he he had the idea like I think he wrote this movie in the early 70s like this was something where he wanted to make this movie oh he wanted to make this movie for a long time but it went through like I don't know like two dozen different drafts at different points yeah so like the the movie itself as as it was presented was not written until basically the year like that it was made. But he was 30 when he made it. Yeah. Just barely. Yeah, I can't remember. I don't know how long he'd been married by that point. I'd have to look know. into his but biography. He was born in but I mean like you have to think it's like 
well, I guess it's still another like eight years before he ends up like having the affair, I think, with Capshaw. And... It was right before um, Temple of Doom. Temple of Doom. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's 83 roughly is when that, all that happens. I don't know. Like, there's a couple scenes in this movie that I enjoy. Like, I. I like the scene after they get out of the helicopter and they're climbing up the mountain. I think that's really well done. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the way the ending looks. Like, I like the look of the spaceship. I like the colors of the spaceship. I like the enormity of the mothership, like, emerging from the storm cloud of doom or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just like... The aliens have this really cool look to them, but then they're, like, doesn't feel like it goes anywhere. And I think the aliens are really like terrifying looking to some degree though the one the, the spindly alien the spindly right is, yeah yeah is yeah a really great yeah like i don't know whatever like imagining of but those were based off of the reports from like sure whatever like, oh and i love all the people that they like had abducted like over the years like coming out yeah. of the ship and everything like, that's so being, cool like, aged. I mean, right that's, that that feels like a and something he would go on to do like i guess like eight years later you know that's like that that's an amazing stories episode sure. yeah. Basically. yeah yeah uh-huh but yeah. you know the other thing too is that there's a lot of green screen in this movie a lot of matte painting mm-hmm. in this movie, yeah right it's yeah, not yeah. Green right screen at, at that, that point. point yeah that looks so much worse than star wars which is the same year yeah like star wars makes it look with the use of models and the use of matte like so much better mm-hmm than this movie, which I think had a much larger budget than Star Wars, and definitely Spielberg was a much bigger name in filmmaking than Lucas at the time. Sure, but I mean, look at the relationship that they forged afterwards. It's like, I think that there's... that, that I think that shows that with Spielberg being the bigger name, there's a lot of respect for Lucas. I mean, right. I think he probably recognized that. Like, I Sure. Mean, you know, Lucas has a I more, agree with you, but I think that, like, probably Spielberg recognized those those weaknesses after the fact. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because Lucas is obviously more, like, interested in the pulp aspect of space. Mm-hmm. And just, it's, it's a backdrop to a story, whereas Spielberg's fascination is it, like, that the extraterrestrial life itself and how we mm-hmm. would deal with it yeah. is more interesting. I don't know. Like, I like the scene with all the, what are they, the man the the coca-cola trucks and the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um piggly wiggly or whatever yeah. trucks that are like leaving like there's some good stuff in the movie it's just i just i don't know i just don't find it interesting yeah and i, I watching it again this time i i woke up uh one morning i watched this like right before i think it was that f- thursday or friday right when uh corona was like really taking hold and i i guess the stress maybe or something i woke up like really early like you know like six thirty seven, 7 and i started watching it at 8 before i went to work and um i got like an hour and 40 minutes into it and i went to work and i had like an hour of office hours before i had to go to class and i just ended up finishing it because it's free on a crackle right now um oh, i shouldn't have paid for it oh i I said, okay, behind the scenes here, I send Frank, I look up the movies every single time and put a, like, a send him a text with a list of where the movies are free or where they're to buy. I sent you this list. This and, is true. 
and but it's free on crackle so i just end up opening it up in my office and finishing because i was i needed to finish it like that's how like much i was actually engaged in this movie again like i don't know it's weird so how much does this movie influence et then like five years later Because E.T. is a much more, even though there still is that, like... I don't know if I can answer that question, because I'm going to make a admission here. I haven't seen E.T. since the theater. And you have to understand what that means. I haven't seen E.T. since I was two years old. Mm-hmm. I've seen scenes from E.T. So... I have not actually watched E.T. since I was, like, two years old. E.T. also has elements of using technology to communicate between the alien species and the humans. I remember, yeah. Elements of the fact that the aliens can affect magnetic forces and electronics. I remember all that. Mm -hmm. But E.T. is a much more whimsical look at, like, a similar idea. Yeah. And a different reaction from the government as opposed to the... Right. More, like, hopeful... Well, it's taking the military's attitude, certainly, in Close Encounters. If the military would have been in charge completely of everything and right. taking it to that degree. Right, because all the military cares about in Close Encounters is making sure there's nobody else can see it. Right. And yeah. that they have the ability to, like, police it. Right. I don't know. It's yeah. it, it's hard to shit all over this movie because, again, it's a beautiful movie. It's very well directed. I just, I don't really think like it's any- boring. I don't like any characters in it. I find it really boring. Like, I don't like Dreyfus's character. I don't like Terry Garr's character. I don't like the Jillian character. You know, the character I like the most is Robert's Blossoms playing um, the kooky guy who also then wants to talk about how he saw Bigfoot once. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. The, the guy from the town. That's, yeah, yeah, the that's, that's the character that I think like, yeah, I want to see a movie about that guy. Yeah. Robert's Blossom. Robert's Blossoms uh, making another list. Yeah. He'll make a lot by the end of it. Yeah. All right. Do you have anything else you want to say about this movie before we move on? Uh, no, sir. I um, I, I think um, I mean, I think you said it well. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that if you haven't seen this movie, I think it's worth watching just for historical perspective in terms of like alien movies and stuff like that. Let me say that I also agree with that. I think that you should watch this movie. I just right. I don't know. I don't ever want to watch it again. So number one movie on your list is 1995 Smoke. Directed by Wayne Wong, uh, starring Harvey Keitel, William Hurt, Stucker Channing, Harold Pirianu, Forrest Whitaker, and Ashley Judd. This is a 93% from critics and an 89% from audiences. Uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it. Okay, so there, this, this is a movie that has a narrative, but it's a very loose narrative and has like multiple kind of like mini stories that are like kind of like interweaved throughout it. It all centers around a smoke shop cigar store that is uh, owned and operated by a character played by Harvey Keitel named Augie. And uh, one of his customers is a local, um, uh, this is all in New York, and one of his customers is a novelist by the name of Paul Benjamin that's played by William Hurt. And the backstory to Benjamin's character is he had a wife that was killed in a um, botched robbery uh, years before and has become pretty much a hermit and hasn't really been able to write a novel since then um, successfully. So he um, 
he goes down to get his um like cigarellos, I guess, like down at Augie's place, like every day he gets two packs. Um, so he has um a slight relationship with Augie, like in the sense of like kind of like a, a loyal customer. Uh one day he's leaving uh the smoke shop, he ends up uh absent mindedly walking out in front of a bus and is saved by a young teen, um uh, played by Harold Perrineau, uh of uh, Oz and Lost fame. And he saves um, Benjamin's life. And Benjamin um, feels that like he owes him something and um, eventually offers the, the kid a place to stay, which he doesn't take at first, but eventually he does. And the boy comes and stays with him for a few days. Uh, so the the boy's name that Perrineau plays is Rashid Cole. And... Um, Rashid is um um oh, how would I describe him? Uh, he's full of a lot of shit. Like he he's he's a talker. Like you know he talks his way out of situations. He's very street smart, and um some of the things he says like doesn't necessarily always like you know line up with like you know the stories that he tells and stuff like that. So um. He ends up like, uh, you know, uh, Rashid ends up leaving, you know, uh, the house after a few days because, um, you know, it's, it's starting to annoy the, the hermit, uh, Paul and, uh, you find out Rashid actually like, you know, um, is, uh, his mother's dead and that he's looking to reconnect with his father that he's never really known all of his life. The father's played by Forrest Whitaker. The father is now living, kind of like outside the city he um has bought a little place where he's a mechanic and um where she goes to like and passes himself off as somebody who doesn't know him and you know gets a job with him in order to try to like kind of like learn about his father and like uh, you know um and have a relationship with him that way there's another story that's going on where all an ex of Augie shows up played by Stocker Channing and they have a daughter that's played by Ashley Judd and he doesn't know about this daughter and they end up going because the daughter is a what is it heroin is that what they or is, uh, it, or is it like something crack or something like that like crack I think is what they say um yeah. She she's a crack addict and is apparently pregnant and she asked for his help in terms of like trying to like deal with her. Um, so there's a subplot that plays out throughout it. Um, Rashid ends up getting a job at Augie's like cigar shop, which she ends up fucking up like an order for uh, of cigars that like Augie's like put all this money invested into. And um, you come to find out Rashid, like part of like the reason he's such a bullshit artist and he's lying so much is because he witnessed a robbery and there's guys in his neighborhood that want him dead. Um, those guys eventually end up showing up to Benjamin's house and looking for Rashid because they heard about him and beating up Benjamin. And, you know, this kind of story plays out where eventually it all ends up where she goes on the run, goes back to where his dad's place is. And then Augie and Paul track him down and it's revealed that this is really like, a you know, Force Whitaker's son. Um, and there's this kind of like, like tense dramatic scene where it's like revealed and um you're kind of left with the idea that Rashid and his father are going to have to like figure out a way to forge a relationship going forward Paul has kind of come out of this um 
you know, with a renewed sense of purpose and hope to some degree. Um, he's writing again, and the um, New York Times offers him, like, a Christmas Day, like, short story. And the movie ends with um, him not really having any ideas, but Augie says, I got a really great idea for a story. And it ends with the two of them at lunch where Augie tells him the story that is probably fictitious and not real, um, but gives him an idea for the New York Times article um, that he can go ahead and write. Um, so it's this really like it's a really small movie overall. It's it's not like you know any kind of grand movie. It has a lot of moving pieces to it. Um, you know, it's it's it has a narrative, but it's light on narrative in some ways. It's more about character a lot of times, and I think message and meaning as opposed to the the narrative elements. So the things that I like about this movie um, is. Well, I guess I'll start off in saying, like, I don't think there's anything terribly, like, you know, fascinating or innovative about the direction of this movie. It is very still a lot of times. I think the cinematography from just, like, a general mise-en-scene standpoint of, like, the way shots are framed is fine. Like, there's, you know, it's it's standard. Um, Off-air, you've described it as, like, kind of feeling a stage play, and I agree with you. Like, you know, I don't think there's anything fascinating about, like, the way this movie's directed. Um... I think that the the story with the Ashley Judd character might have been probably not necessary and a misstep in some ways. Um, but I think that it's a competently filmed movie um, and it does really well considering it's such a talky movie. Um, and I think it hits some really powerful scenes. I think it does a really good job of establishing character for these people and I think that the performances in this um, are particularly good. I think that Harold Perrineau, who um, uh, is uh, Michael in Lost, um, is where probably most people know him from. He also played Augustus Hill in Oz, or probably two of his more famous roles. Um, I don't know how old he was here, but it's like you can see like how what a good actor he can be um uh considering his age and my guess is he's probably in his mid to late 20s playing young but he's really good in this um as this kind of like fast talking like street kid um i think kaitel shows like a depth and a subtlety to his performance that um is really strong and interesting I think that William Hurt, while he's playing that kind of standard William Hurt, morbid, melancholy um, type of character, is still this is one of the best best performances of that type of William Hurt um, in this movie. And I think all of them are really fascinating, complex characters. They're all broken people um, who use these kind of like albeit coincidental um is the nicest way of saying it uh meetings and interactions with one another in order to propel them forward in life and learn from those things and um figure out a way to move forward um i think the augie character is really fascinating in the sense of that he's a this flawed but ultimately well-meaning and charming individual who is at once both very 
I think, suspicious and cynical of the world around him, but at the same time has a deep sense of community and a desire to interact and help others um, at times. And I think that's really hard to do um, is the, is the play that. Um, and the final scene of this is probably one of my favorite final scenes, even though it has nothing to do necessarily with the plot of this movie. The final scene where Augie tells his story in this long monologue um, to William Hurt about this time that he spent Christmas with this blind old black lady um, that through this you know certain set of circumstances he ends up spending Christmas with is one of the more riveting of the time period, I would say, like the 90s and 2000s, one of the more riveting monologues um, that's delivered um, in a movie like that I think is just like captivating to just watch Kytel sit there and tell the story. Uh, and then when they reenact that over a series of black and white um, images um, in the uh, credits to the Tom Waits song uh, that they play, um, I think is really uh sweet and charming and uh, i don't know it makes me feel good um this was a movie that i had heard about because i read you know entertainment weekly and like you know everybody was like you know in art indie circles was raving over this movie and when it came out on video i rented it and i loved it in probably 96 or whatever when i saw it and I watched it the other day for the first time since then. I probably saw it twice then, and I watched it the other day, and um, I still had those same warm feelings um, about the movie overall. And I think now that I'm older, I think I actually get it a little bit more um, than I did is, um, is that, you know, like uh, at the end, Augie says, like, you know, like he, William Hurt says, like, you know, basically like, you know, you got a real gift, Augie. Um, when he tells him the story, cause William Hurt realizes it's probably a bullshit story and none of it really happened. And, um, Augie says that, um, Oh God, what does he say? Like, what's the exact words I'm trying to think? Um, well, if you can't tell your friends who you really are, then, you know, what's, what's it all for or something along those lines. He's yeah, paraphrasing. And it's like, um, with a little like, you know, shit eating grin on his face when he says it. And, it made me realize is that like, you know, if he can't, the, the message there to that, he's like telling Paul is that if he can't, if he can't show that he himself is a bullshit artist to his friend and take him in his confidence and let him know I'm somebody who can be full of shit, you know, like that's what real human friendships and interactions are. And when you think about it, everybody's full of shit in this movie to some degree. Like Rashid's full of shit. The father, like Rashid's father's full of shit, telling himself lies and, you know, trying to like, you know, kind of like hide the past. You know, everybody's like hiding something in this movie and people aren't being honest with one another. Um, and ultimately, I think like I realized like if there's a theme to this movie, it's the idea that, you know, our true self, the, the things that make friendships, the thing that makes bonds with people is the idea that we share our true selves with those people. Hmm. Um, even if it's, even in the smallest ways, 
um is is we 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 share our true selves and uh, deep down of who we are with those people um yeah and i just think it's this kind of like sweet small um interesting movie that i think is been forgotten um because of the time period and like no it's just never caught steam and beyond that year really or those couple years surrounding it and i think it's still a really solid movie that i think has a lot of um meaning and depth to it okay so this was a movie where when i saw it upon its release i kind of convinced myself that i enjoyed it because i felt like i was supposed to and then saw blue in the face like i think the same year it was really shortly after smoke came out that blue in the face was released yeah i think it was 96 when blue in the face came out did not enjoy blue in the face right blue in the face blue in the face is pure vignettes by the way right it's by the same director same general writer similar augie is in the movie in that movie and that's kind of like again it centers around the cigar shop largely um, but you have a lot more famous people like Madonna and stuff like that. But it's all vignettes. It's all shorts, like right. these short stories. And there's a couple good short stories in there, but mostly it sucks. So, yeah, you're yeah. right. You're right. So, went back and watched Smoke a few years later. Um, I think I think maybe Zeke rented it or somebody brought it over. For some reason, we watched it. And just sat there and thought, like, man, I don't care about any of this. Like... I'm very weird when it comes to movies that are vignettes or anthology movies. Like, horror movies, like, I love horror anthologies. It's one of my favorite <clears throat> ways to watch a horror movie because you get, like, all these different directors or different scenarios and they all play out, like, differently. And, you know, it's like a brief, like, 20 to 30 minute bit and you can just kind of move on from it. I feel like the only two scenes in this movie... Because it really is just like interconnected scenes, like loosely interconnected, um, that I think work for me are the opening scene where they're talking about the Mets in the cigar shop and the final scene where Augie's telling his Christmas story. And to your point, really great monologue, really great story, good interactions between two actors who genuinely feel like, whether true or not, that they like each other as people. I realized watching this movie this time that I don't think I like Harvey Keitel at all. Like, I don't think I like the way he delivers dialogue. I don't think I like the way he reacts to things. I really, and I never noticed this before, so it's interesting that you say about the Ashley Judd subplot. I don't like that Stocker Channing's character is used as a punchline and a way to show how much of an asshole Augie can be, because that really is what it is, and then uses that to flip it to show what a kind heart Augie can have when he gives her the money. Like, she's missing an eye so he can make jokes about her wearing a patch over her. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's just this forced thing where, it's like... It's, it's one joke. He says it a few times. He calls her, um... Fuck, what is now, it? you're right. He, it's twice. It's twice. Yeah, it's twice. One of the first when he first meets her, and then there's a joke later on yeah. that he makes. Yeah, right. So I don't think You're that right. that character has any depth or relevance. I think it's just basically meant to be a foil to him, to make him like to show nuance to his character by bouncing his reactions off this character that 
doesn't really matter ultimately. Like so that whole part of it It's all about Augie. Could be cut away and I doesn't agree. do anything yeah. to the movie. Right. <clears throat> I don't like the dialogue in much of the movie. I find it to be very stilted and I think like I said, you know, and you brought this up, I feel like this is something where as a theatrical produ- production would be much more effective than as a movie. Mm-hmm. I don't think it needs to be a movie at all. Particularly I don't like Force Whitaker's reaction to finding out that Piranu is his son. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's overwrought, and I don't, I don't find it to be dramatic. I just find it to be melodramatic, and not in a way that like I had any interest in. I just kind of wanted it to be over, really. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just I understand your point, and I think that you know, typically we talk a lot about my nostalgia picks, and a lot of my defense is that I you know I loved it at this particular time and watching it evokes those reactions in me but i don't i just don't feel it with this movie i don't like it i don't think that wayne wong is a particularly talented director i don't either um i i mean i i like i said i think that as a director i don't think um i think the writer's more talented than the director is in this sure and even that, like, I don't know that the dialogue feels natural when it's delivered. Like, uh, I see, think, I think it feels a lot of times like I—I I mean, it's stylized, absolutely, but I think it feels like stylized, naturalistic dialogue. It feels like what's his name, the Spanish prisoner guy, Mamet. It feels like yep. Mamet, yep, without a plot. And to me, like Mamet works because there's a good plot usually behind Mamet. Whereas this, it's just like I just don't care. Like I said, the plot, uh, as being kind when I said it's coincidental, is 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 uh, there are forced elements to this. It's like it's like the idea that everybody's keeping secrets to some degree is like um, is is what propels the plot forward, and usually that's cheap. I mean, Lost did that for a long time too as a television show. If you think about it, and it's like um, I, I the curse of Pirianu. Yeah, maybe, right? And it's like, um, oh, it's the same way. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I, um, even though I was being kind of when I said it, it's like, yeah, there's some elements of the plot, of the plot that are forced because of like the secret keeping, but I still think that the human element of it is to me strong enough and, and, and interesting enough to me that I like how these characters interact with one another ultimately and forge those relationships that kind of allow them to try to start healing um, and how like they end up like kind of learning or teaching lessons from their own personal tragedies in order to, um, to help the others yeah. out. Again, like, I don't... I think it's the most truest to life thing that I could actually see in a movie to some degree. I watched something like Overboard, and I don't understand how people enjoy Overboard. But, like, mm-hmm. I watched this movie, and, like, I get why people like it. Like, right. I understand. Yeah. And I remember, like, thinking the same thing. But mm-hmm. I remember thinking it when I was a pretentious kid mm-hmm. who, like, if something was in sight and sound and was, like, lauded by, I don't know you know time out like i was like oh i gotta love this movie but yeah. like growing up like getting older i just I don't. yeah i remember seeing anymore. reading about this in entertainment weekly and then i saw siskel and ebert talk about it because i watched siskel and ebert every week at that point um i think bledsoe bone and i watched it together a lot of times yeah. and i remember them talking about this and blue in the face um 
I remember seeing both of those reviews on Saturday afternoons or whatever. And um, like, so like when it came out and I saw it for rental, I, I went ahead and picked it up. And yeah, like, I mean, I, 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 what was fascinating is like, I, like I said, I haven't seen this in 24 years or so. And I didn't necessarily have to rewatch it again. Like it's that I, I watched it twice and it was burned into my mind that much. So the only things I really remembered were the early William Hurt monologue about the way to smoke, which I think is a really well-written part of mm-hmm. the movie. Right. And I remembered the scene where they're sitting in um, Kaitel's apartment looking at his photo albums right. full of pictures because I I genuinely think that's a good scene. It's like shortcuts to me, you know, like that's it, it's the it's when you said that off air, I there, there I had uh I had to resist an urge to like vomit, but go ahead. <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's just not. It's just not <laughs> my thing. I just don't like it. It's funny that this is your number one. I would have. I don't know. In terms of my hatred for movies, Overboard is definitely my number one. So I truly dis- despise that movie. Um, this one probably would have been four or five. Like that's interchangeable. I mean, I didn't like wasn't angry watching this movie i just didn't i just don't really enjoy it yeah and i you know i mean like we've had arguments before where i've said that i mean last week we talked about freaking beyond the clouds where i'm trying to defend sure. like almost plotless movie just because i love the way it looks yeah. you know maybe that's the difference maybe that's like the the english professor in you is like drawn in more by the the dialogue and the, i'm always i always am yeah. though like, and I love well. You know my memory for but... like dialogue and stuff like that. Like I can remember that stuff very easily. Like a lot of times, like yeah, you know, um, that's why like I get frustrated when I'm on the podcast here and I can't remember the exact words because I'm usually so good at remembering exactly how something's delivered. Or it's funny that it took me this long in my life to realize I just don't like Harvey Keitel. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I thought about it though a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago because I watched Reservoir Dogs again. When we, before we, so I guess it's probably been about six months now, when we did the Tarantino retrospective, and I watched Reservoir Dogs, and I realized, like, man, I hate his delivery in this movie. Like, he's not good. What about when he's, like, uh, when Rolf gets shot, and he's in the back of that car, and he's like, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> it's awful. I See, think- I think that's really... I don't know. No, I, I we, just... we were we were talking off air, and here's how I feel about Harvey Keitel when I was watching this, which is so funny that you said that you don't like him, is I think that Keitel does, because of a unique voice, he has a very similar delivery. But, like, where it's like people get criticized for that, like somebody like Jack Nicholson gets criticized for his same acting style and everything he does. I do think that Kaitel, in terms of his mannerisms, like his presence, his movement in characters and the way that he, and that's director and set direction to some degree too, but it's like the way he presents himself in terms of hair, in terms of like, you know, like, like dress and things sometimes is I do think he can create slightly subtly nuanced characters that are different from one another um through those kind of things even if they sound similar through inflection and cadence um i agree with you that he sounds the same all the time but i do think he tries to do different things um in order to combat some of that and i don't think the reverend character in from dust till dawn 
is anything like Augie, and it might be subtle, but it's like I don't think Augie is anything like Mr. White whatsoever. Sure. I mean, I I agree. I just don't just don't care for him. Hmm. And I'm trying to think, like, because I loved Harvey Keitel at this point in my life. Right. Like, I was so excited to see this movie because most I mean, his character in the piano is nothing like any of those. Like, I mean, like, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think, I think the range is limited, but I think that there are subtleties there that make him still a good actor. Um, yeah, it's just not my cup of tea. Yeah. So, all right, cool. Okay. So, I, I want to come, you do a much better job of letting me just, talk or ramble it felt like at times than i do a view of like interrupting you i noticed well um, she was on the other foot you know like i, I know how it feels <laughs> just get it out man you know? uh-huh yeah um like sometimes you need to have that time to like get get from a genesis to like an actual salient point when you're just like talking off the cuff about yeah you know something that like you enjoy or you love so i mean i, I understand yeah um, I try to be a gracious host, but no, yeah, I was, just, I, I, was I felt like, uh, what the hell is that called? Not waving, but drowning. Mm. Um, that's a, that's a Stevie Smith reference for you. Um, on the, on the, uh, March 2020 podcast. Um, <clears throat> do, do you think that there's been ever been a, see, this is the kind of stuff I actually wish I knew sometimes. Do you think there's ever been a Stevie Smith reference? How many Stevie Smith references do you think have ever been made on a podcast before? I think on about this any stuff. Podcast? When I'm really bored listening to our podcast so I can find clips to put on Instagram, this is the kind of stuff I think of. It's like, you'll reference something. I was like, I wonder if anybody's ever referenced like that specific thing that you've said I mean, not, on a podcast. Not Waving with Drowning is pretty pretty popular poem, right? So Yeah, but do you think anybody's actually like outside of a poetry podcast? I don't know if I'm assuming they exist some feminist podcast maybe or i don't know what are you laughing like i mean I, don't try you, you ask me a question i'm trying to answer the question i don't know i'm sure somebody's it's feminist it. they love they love stevie smith they do She's actually a feminist writer I, I, i'm just fucking i'm not being not. Like, I, know, I know i know i i like that poem i'm i'm not trying to be derogatory i'm just trying to answer no it's a great question. poem yeah. um okay so so this is done um so this, this episode now this is going to be our most self-indulgent episode except for episode possibly 100 which won't be self-indulgent but meta i think right so let's reflect for a moment okay how successful do you feel this podcast was quick reaction define success did you enjoy doing it um i enjoyed watching these movies again the way you're holding that microphone makes me think you're real uncomfortable about the about a, the role reversal a, a, about evaluating yeah, um, yeah, yeah. the the that i never asked you to evaluate our episode i know that's why i'm the host this time and you're not so i this is how i this is how i, I host i i think i just told you how i felt i felt like most of the time that i was uh, uh right not waving but drowning I right yeah yeah I, so i i think i did a, a Slightly better than mediocre job. Uh, no, you did well. Get out of here. Defending the movie, these movies, um, which I mean, none of these movies would be in my top one hundred. I don't feel like I shit on them as hard as I wanted to either. 
You didn't. Yeah. I think it was because I was slightly above mediocre. <laughs> Is that what it was? I think so. Yes. I mean, honestly, like, there's merit to all five of these movies. It's just, I just don't like them, you know? That's it. There's, that's very kind of you. There's very little merit to Overboard. You're right. <laughs> there's merit to four of these five movies. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, oh, Overboard is a colossal piece of trash and has no <laughs> there's, and there's, has no place there's in some fu- there's some funny stuff in the Overboard. canon of like cinema. Like Overboard there's some funny is funny stuff in Overboard. I almost watched just to be a perfectionist. I almost watched the remake of Overboard. I might watch it cuz it's free. I know Prime. it is. That's why I almost watched it and I couldn't bring myself to do it. I watched half of uh I wish Nick Cage was in it so I could do it as a quick cage. Maybe I could just pretend. Yeah. I'm sure he would have cast himself in that role. Hmm. Why am I over the boat? Uh. <laughs> oh, keep it in your pants, man. It's coming. Your cage podcast is coming. I enjoyed it. I would like to do something similar again. But really? Yeah. Mm. Okay. I mean, I already watched Money Pits. So there's one. And I oh, is more. that what we'd have to do this concept again? Oh, I don't know. We could do a different concept. I don't know what other concept we would do. Right. Um, what do I know? <laughs> Film I don't noir? Know. Yeah, you know um, 80s action movies. I do know 80s action movies. We could watch yeah. Red Dawn and Red Heat. and Red Dawn? I don't I will watch Red Dawn. You don't like Red Dawn? Don't. Don't put that shit on me. <laughs> like, you don't like Red Dawn? It's fine. <laughs> Never wanted to be a Wolverine, I guess. <laughs> Red Heat, very possible. Very possible. Raw Deal? No. no Tequila don't. Sunrise? Uh, I never cared for that that much. You know, I mean, you know the Kurt Russell movie that would be on that list. 80s action? Big Trouble? Oh, absolutely. Tango and Cash? No. What's his... Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. That's first of all, I think that's nineteen ninety. It it's like nineteen ninety one. Same sir. thing. Um, you know what I watched the other day? That Mickey was, Rourke and uh, Don Johnson. Right? Yeah. You yeah. know what I watched the other day? It was amazing that what? I forgot how much I loved was Commando. You want to talk about like perfect I, nonsensical eighties action movie? Commando is amazing. I'm pretty sure we. Maybe it was Wesley's house that we watched Commando one night or something like in the past 15 years. But I, I, I've seen Commando in the past like 15 years and I thought it still held up um, from maybe not quite as much, but it still held up really well. Um, I love that movie as a kid. It's, it was, it was, it was maybe my favorite Schwarzenegger movie as a yeah, kid. It's really good. Yeah. I like it as much as Predator. Honestly, yeah. for like early Schwarzenegger. Predator kind of got fucked. I, I still like Predator a lot, but Predator got fucked up for me that night that i did um lsa right. or whatever um that and running man you know my favorite uh, early schwarzenegger movie is though conan the barbarian yeah right yeah. one of your favorite movies big trouble die hard if i was if i'm just going off the cuff lethal weapon um right. those are the big three for sure. me what's but four and five i don't I'm, i don't know I, i'm not very good at uh, this is why you make the list this is why First i don't Blood make- part two no. Really? No. Shit. You non-American pansy. Like, how could you, like, not... How how were you a child in the 80s and not, like, loved First Blood Part 2? I liked it, I, but it's like, um... 
for you want do you want to okay we're going to end this soon but it's like here here's what i think it is about first bud part part two is um you know that fucking video game the nes game Uh uh-huh so long after i watched that movie that i that i remember enjoying when i was a kid like eight or whatever right I played that game for years after that because I bought the game. Mm. I think I got it through Sears, through the catalog. And I would try to play that fucking game. That game's fucking awful and impossible. It's it's a bad game. It's a terrible game and it's a hard game. It actually has a cult following, though, people that really like it because there's like some tricks to it, I guess. Of course. Like, I, I didn't know the tricks. And I don't know them either. Fuck that game. Yeah. And I think the game somehow tainted my view of the movie did you have any of the rambo toys the lgn toys oh I, yeah, yeah, yeah i those had toys all of them. were amazing i don't know if orion took those or not just they so you know like- our friend orion wellmaker um when i moved from my house uh like took most of my toys because i was just getting going to get rid of them so he took like almost all of them like that he wanted uh, i don't know if he i'm pretty sure he probably took them and like i don't know probably sold them or something i think that's probably true Anyway, took those took on my transformers. Amazing. They had very similar um, body styles to the He-Man figures, but more like uh, anatomically like accurate to real people. Mm-hmm. And they had really great weapons. They had good vehicles. Colonel Troutman. Troutman, right? Yeah, I had. Yeah, yeah I had a lot of those. Yeah, mm-hmm. I had the big um, playset actually. Oh man, that playset was with amazing. the tower. Yeah, the tower. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. that was a cl- not claw. I can't remember the name of the bad guys. Scar or something like that. Right. Anyway, so but, um, thanks for listening. Um, <laughs> we're going to have a break. No, we just came no, back from a break. We so. just came back from a break, so we're going to... Come on, host, man. What, what's, the nec- what's the next podcast? Do you, so, do you know what the next podcast is? Our next podcast is um, Frank's Top 5 Bergman Movies of oh, All there Time. There you go. Good job. It's an incredibly personal and probably... If you want to talk about self-indulgence, like listening to me talk about Ingmar Bergman is going to be fucking painful. But, you know, it should be fun. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that's what i did the other night rather than watch uh the overboard remake. right watch bergman movies yeah. that you should always do it was the right choice yes it's always the right choice right um what's the what's the third what's the third podcast in april do you know mm. coronavirus is going on so we had to change it up oh is it the cults there you go right top Good five job. top five movies about cults right which might sort of violate our horror no horror clause or whatever for this year but um I have some movies that I don't think are necessarily horror that fall into It's the that. end times where we're, we're allowed it. Right. It, or at least it feels like the end times. What did you guys... You guys made me do like top five outbreak movies ever at the bar the other night. Well, not the other night. Cause right. Because we've been we quarantined. But forever, yeah, right. But yeah. But the last... One of the last... Forever. Times the bar. I don't even... It's two. It feels like forever. It's been three <laughs> or something. I don't know. Anyway, it's... Right. Life is over as we know it. It's fine. <laughs> right so yeah so that's our next couple um uh-huh. so as always thanks for listening um you can check us out on facebook um instagram at two guys five movies that's the number two and the number five guys five movies um feel free to email us at our gmail account which is the same two guys five movies at gmail.com we look forward to suggestions comments criticisms you know undeserved praise is fine as well um <laughs> Thanks for listening. You know, thanks for all the new listeners we've gotten over the past couple of months. Um, And look forward to doing this again. Check out the quick cage. 
Oh, right. We're going to do a quick cage, too, so you right. got that. All right. Nailed it, Frank. Nailed it. All right. Have a good night. <laughs>